0: Up in the US. Also called the shenanigans podcast play that reggae too. In case you did hey, this is how we do Ooh. thank you for tuning in to shenanigans podcast episode 13. this is a production of the mari media group however we are not necessarily affiliated with native Expat radio because that's a radio station that plays music that entertains people, and I am none of those things. But thank you for tuning in to my quasi-foul-mouthed ranting and occasional spewing of statistics and facts and figures and all that whatnot. That said, on with the news. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts has unveiled a luxurious new resort with overwater villas in Palau. The Wyndham Palau is being developed by the Sea Sky International Development Group, a subsidiary of Global International Development Group. The resort is located in the air quotations unspoiled region of Imalig, which is home to spectacular natural landscapes, or was, ancient villages and crystal clear seas teeming with colorful marine life. Upon completion, this 593 key resort will offer a choice of beautifully appointed accommodations, including 132 hotel guest rooms and over 400 villas with some perched on stilts over warm, shallow seas. Uh, The Wyndham Palau will be located just 20 minutes drive from Palau International Airport and a short boat transfer from Koror, the country's main commercial center. I'm less concerned about the actual content of the article than I am over these excerpts I'm about to read, which are from statements delivered by the Senate President, Jocons Baules, and Speaker of the House of Representatives, Sabino Anastasio, during the ribbon cutting and groundbreaking ceremony for the Palau Windham Resort, which was actually held at Tululang, Tidak, on July 27, 2018. You can read the full transcripts at Mariday.com, the blog post for this episode. These transcripts are courtesy of Diabela newspaper. So, reading through Senate President Hokon Spaulses statement here, as you know, the Senate of the Republic of Palau is in line with the President of the Republic of Palau that we encourage high-end investment that can promote Palau through good environment and make Palau a real pristine paradise. So, I hope Minister Obiang, our office in Taiwan, stop bullying for the people of the mainland China so we can become closer friendly with the People's Republic of China. There's no such good thing to be friends with the People's Republic of China, the second great country in the world when it comes to trade and commercial development in the island like Republic of Palau. I think it's about time that we focus our interest and view towards the People's Republic of China for more development and infrastructure that I feel, that some other countries may be short to do, but People's Republic of China will be committed to help us for tourism and many more infrastructure. As you know, we are trying to help Palau Visitors Authority to promote Palau in mainland China, and that is one of our focus. So let's be friends with them so they can accommodate and accept our Palau Visitors Authority when they have trips to mainland China to promote the Republic of Palau. Those are Senate President Jokunz-Bowles' statements. Again, those are just excerpts. So let's go look at some excerpts from Speaker of the House, Sabino Anastasio. Several years ago, I met a young lady, beautiful young Chinese lady. Her name is Selena Zhang. She became my friend. Actually became our daughter. But today, with that friendship, she wanted to invest in Palau. So we spend about several weeks. I wanted to take her to MSR, but she decided she likes the sunset view. So she and my wife overwhelmed me and put the project in Imelid. So today is the day that Selina and the Chinese investors have decided to invest in Palau. And surely they invest in Palau at a high end and it really fit on the law that the President of the Republic of Palau and the Congress, which is high end, the hotel will improve the road and will work with the governor in the state of Imalig to improve the tourist sites and all other tourist attractions in the Republic of Palau. Anyway, this morning it is an honor that this is the single largest investment from China to Palau, and while the debate is Going on between the tourists from China, we believe that this resort will bring more tourists from China. It will help PVA in promoting tourism in China. We ask Ms. Li to continue to send more investment from China to Palau. The Senate president has offered her an apartment in Palau, so she will be here a little bit more, you know. Why don't we give her a hand, eh? if you tuned in last week, you would have heard the news story. Palauan ambassador to Taiwan, Dilme Ulgaril, was interviewed by Channel News Asia, and she said, and I quote, large democratic countries around the world should adopt strategies to counter China's bullying, particularly of small developing countries like Palau. Her comments, again, came after Palau Pacific Airways had suspended their operations, ending their service to Hong Kong and to Macau through Bali, due to a drop in Chinese visitors. That drop in arrivals resulted because of Beijing's ban on group tours to Palau, which was imposed this past November, 2017, and that was due to Palau's diplomatic ties with Taiwan. Earlier in the month, early in July, Palau Pacific Airways had said that China had labeled Palau an illegal tour destination and had barred its citizens from visiting due to their lack of diplomatic ties. In that same interview, Ambassador Olgaril said a majority of Palau's people support the current diplomatic relations with Taiwan. She pointed out that everyone knows China pressures other countries and international organizations not to support Taiwan. Organizations like the United Nations, World Health Organization, and the World Health Assembly. She went on to say that hospitals in Taiwan have saved thousands of Palauan lives, and as such, it would be difficult for Palau to break ties with Taiwan. Now... I make it a point to vet and verify everything I put out, whether it's in podcasts or in writing. I try to vet and verify everything. So I'm not going to say that the politicians involved in this are that they're benefiting in any way from these newfound relationships with investors. However, I will say that if that were to come out as vetted, verifiable information, it would not be a shock to me. I am not anti-development. I am not anti-business. I am, however, anti-political corruption. And I am a firm believer that when looking at development prospects, we should always do what is best for the greater community and what is best for the natural resources. That said, I don't necessarily have anything else to add to this story other than you can read the full transcript on the blog post associated with this episode. Thanks to Tiabela newspaper for providing that transcript. And also to pay close attention to the leadership, pay attention to what they say, pay attention to what they do, and hold them accountable for these things. Okay, so last week, I covered the South Pacific Mandate. This week, we're going to speed our asses on through World War II. I'm only going to go through the World War II Pacific Theater timeline because this segment is less about World War II itself and more about the end of the war, which is the birth of the United Nations. So, kicking off World War II Pacific edition. December 7th, 1941. The Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. They also attacked the Philippines, Wake Island, Guam, Thailand, Shanghai, and Midway. In a matter of three days, the United States and Britain have declared war on Japan. The Japanese have landed near Singapore in order to enter Thailand. China declares war on Japan, and the Japanese invade the Philippines, but also seize Guam. Fast forward to... February 1, 1942, the first U.S. aircraft carrier offensive of the war, Yorktown and Enterprise, conduct air raids on Japanese bases in the Gilbert and Marshall Islands. March 18, 1942, General MacArthur is appointed commander of the Southwest Pacific Theater by President Roosevelt. June 4 and 5, 1942, turning point in the war occurs with a decisive victory for the United States against Japan. In the Battle of Midway, squadrons of United States torpedo planes and dive bombers from Enterprise Hornet in Yorktown attack and destroy four Japanese carriers, a cruiser, and damage another cruiser and two destroyers. The U.S., however, loses Yorktown. August 17, 1942, 122 U.S. Marine Raiders transported by submarine attack an atoll in the Gilbert Islands. Quasi unrelated, but I'm throwing it in here anyway. September 9th or 10th, somewhere in there, 1942, a Japanese float plane flies two missions, dropping incendiary bombs on the United States forests in the state of Oregon. It is the only bombing of the continental United States during World War II. Newspapers in the United States voluntarily withheld the information at that time. November 20th, 1943, US troops invade the Gilbert Islands. January 31st, 1944, U.S. troops invade Kwajalein in the Marshall Islands. February 1st through 7th, U.S. troops capture Kwajalein and additional atolls in the Marshall Islands. February 17th or 18th, somewhere in there, 1944, U.S. carrier-based planes destroy the Japanese naval base in Chuuk in the Caroline Islands. February 23rd, 1944, U.S. carrier-based planes attack the Mariana Islands. June 15, 1944, US Marines invade Saipan at the Mariana Islands. June 19, 1944 is what was referred to as the Mariana's Turkey Shoot, which occurs as US carrier based fighters shoot down 220 Japanese planes while only 20 American planes were lost. July 19, 1944, US Marines invade Guam. July 24, 1944, US Marines invade Tinian. July 27, 1944, American troops complete the liberation of Guam. August 8, 1944, American troops complete the capture of the Mariana Islands. September 15, 1944, U.S. troops invade Palau. Of this task force, which have been pounding the island for three days, will give it a final terrific softening up. During these three days, the Navy has been in complete control of the waters around these southern islands of the Palau Group, Palau and the little islet of Negesibos. Now, General Quarters has just sounded. The crew is running to their battle stations. And in just a few minutes, we will start firing. We will start the final bombardment of the beaches before the troops go in. Now, what you just listened to was war correspondent John Cooper's report from a Navy cruiser in the Pacific. The report described the action aboard the ship during the first landing of U.S. troops in Palau. Moving right ahead, October 18, 1944, 14 B-29s based on the Marianas attacked the Japanese base in Chuk. July 26, 1945, components of the atom bomb Little Boy are unloaded at Tinian. August 6, 1945, the first atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima from a B-29 flown by Colonel Paul Tibbets. August 9, 1945, the second atomic bomb is dropped on Nagasaki from a B 29 flown by Major Charles Sweeney. Emperor Hirohito and Japanese Prime Minister Suzuki then decide to seek an immediate peace with the Allies. August 14, 1945, the Japanese accept unconditional surrender. General MacArthur is appointed to head the occupation forces in Japan. September 2, 1945, a formal Japanese surrender ceremony on board the Missouri in Tokyo Bay as 1,000 carrier-based planes fly overhead. President Truman declares victory over Japan Day. September 3, 1945, the Japanese commander in the Philippines, General Yamasta, surrenders to General Wainwright. September 4th, 1945, Japanese troops on Wake Island surrender. September 5th, 1945, the British land in Singapore. September 8th, General MacArthur enters Tokyo. September 9th, the Japanese in Korea surrender. September 13th, 1945, the Japanese in Burma surrender. And October 24th, 1945, the United Nations is born. Now, the United Nations was the second multipurpose international organization established in the 20th century that was worldwide in its scope and its membership. Its predecessor, the League of Nations, was created by the Treaty of Versailles in 1919, but disbanded in 1946. It was headquartered in New York City, but the UN also has regional offices in Geneva, Vienna, and Nairobi. According to its charter, the United Nations aims to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, to establish conditions under which justice and respect for the obligations arising from treaties and other sources of international law can be maintained, and to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Now, In addition to maintaining peace and security, other important objectives include developing friendly relations among countries based on respect for the principles of equal rights and self-determination of peoples, achieving worldwide cooperation to solve international economic, social, cultural, and humanitarian problems, respecting and promoting human rights, and serving as a center where countries can coordinate their actions and activities towards these various ends. The United Nations formed a continuum with the League of Nations in general purpose, structure, and functions. Many of the UN's principal organs and related agencies were adopted from similar structures established earlier in the century. Now, in some respects, however, the UN constituted a different organization, especially in its regard to maintaining international peace and security and its commitment to economic and social development. And it was through the United Nations that we'll be getting into our next and probably most important to discuss topic, the Trust Territories of the Pacific. No matter what it is, no matter what you do, never give up, you keep on running through. That's why this podcast with that- whether it's your bipolar or anxiety, OCD, or depression, schizophrenia, man, we can all relate. It's the self-care, it's the self-care, because we is there. Always be positive and you make it. While I was living and working in Palau, I'd heard this one statement several times, and it was one of those things that just never ceased to shock me. Which in English amounts to, well, yeah, he's a drinker, but at least he doesn't hit her. And I'd like to say that I, I only heard this once or twice ever, but I actually heard it said with uncomfortable regularity. It was said somehow like it was a plus, almost in the form of, well, yeah, her... Boyfriend-husband drinks and gets mad or yells at her, but at least he doesn't actually hit her. So here's my periodic reminder to people that emotional abuse is still fucking abuse. Yeah, he didn't hit her, but he gaslights her on the daily, tells her she's worthless, and threatens to cheat if she doesn't feel like having sex. So if none of that is abuse in your book, it is time to get a new book. That said, experiencing abuse in any form can affect a person in many ways. Abuse can make people feel frightened, it can make them feel overwhelmed, it can make them distrustful, it can hurt, it can make them sad and confused and angry, ashamed, hopeless. There's a whole spectrum to this. Moreover, abuse can affect how a person responds to others, even if they're not someone who is directly responsible for the abuse It could be someone who had nothing to do with the abuse, someone who doesn't even know abuse is happening. If a person has a mental health condition, experiencing abuse may cause their symptoms to get worse, and all of this can change a person dramatically for the rest of their lives. The Palau Family Health and Safety Study was a 2014 study aimed at obtaining reliable data on the prevalence and types of violence against women in Palau. The study also sought to document the associations between partner violence and health issues and other outcomes as well as to identify risk and protective factors for partner violence. Now the study used two main reference periods to estimate prevalence of violence. There's lifetime violence and current violence. Lifetime violence refers to violence experienced by a woman in her life, even if it only happened once. Current violence refers to violence experienced by a woman in the 12 months preceding the interview. Now the study used an expanded definition of partnership in which the term, ever partnered, refers to women who have had a relationship with a man regardless of whether they were married. And so that includes women in cohabitating relationships, dating relationships, separated, divorced, and widowed. The Family Health and Safety Study estimated prevalence of violence against women based on a sample of 931 women, of whom 886 were ever-partnered respondents. So the most relevant findings of the study are as follows. One quarter of women in Palau, 25.2%, have experienced and or sexual violence by a partner in their lifetime over 8% experienced such violence in the 12 months prior to the interview 23% of ever partnered women in Palau experienced physical partner violence in their lifetime the most common act of physical partner violence was being slapped or having something thrown at them 4.5% of ever pregnant women experienced physical partner violence in at least one pregnancy, and over one third of these women, 37%, were punched in the abdomen. Slightly over 10% of women in Palau experienced sexual violence by a partner in their lifetime. The most common act of sexual violence was forced sexual intercourse. Nearly 47% of women who experienced partner violence had injuries as a result of the violence. Over 18% of these women needed health care due to the severity of these injuries. The proportion of women who had thought of suicide was higher among women who had experienced partner violence, 19.7%, than among those who had never been abused, 8%. Women who Ever experienced partner violence were more than twice as likely to miscarry, 8%, than women who had never experienced partner violence, 3.5%. Half of the women who experienced physical partner violence said their children had witnessed the violence. Children of women who had experienced partner violence were more likely to have dropped out of school, 7.1%, than children of never abused women, 2.2%. Women who experienced partner violence were more likely to report that they had witnessed their mother being beaten by a partner, that their partners witnessed their mothers being beaten by a partner, and that their partner was beaten in childhood. Over one-third of ever abused women, 37%, had never told anyone about the violence. Those who did disclose the violence mostly confided in family members or friends. A majority of ever abused women, 65.8%, never sought help from formal services or the authorities. Nearly 14% of all interviewed women in Palau have experienced physical violence by a non partner in their lifetime. Slightly over 15% of women in Palau have experienced sexual violence by a non-partner since the age of 15 in their lifetime. The most commonly reported perpetrators were male family members and male friends and or acquaintances. Almost 12% of all respondents experienced sexual abuse before the age of 15, mostly when respondents were aged 10 to 14, 55.4%, and when they were aged five to nine, 41.7%. The most commonly reported perpetrators of child sex abuse were male family members. (music) Palau, a situation analysis of children, youth, and women was a 2008 report providing a situational analysis of the condition of children and women in Palau. The report indicates that of the annual average of 90 cases of adult domestic violence reported to the VOCA program, victims of crime assistance, 90% involve assaults against women by domestic partners. The report also cites data from a 2007 study of high school students in Palau, the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, which shows high levels of violence among school-aged couples and high levels of coerced sex. Specifically, data reveals that 14% of students were physically assaulted by a partner, 21% were forced to have sexual intercourse. Now, the Ending Violence Against Women and Girls Evidence, Data, and Knowledge in the Pacific Countries was a 2010 study. This report provided a synopsis of existing literature and survey material on the nature of gender-based violence in 15 Pacific Island countries, including Palau. Among other things, the report states that access to justice in Palau is weak, as there is a need for more extensive legislation to address violence against women and girls. The report, for example, indicates that there is no crime of rape within marriage and no statute that specifically addresses domestic violence. While it is important to note that this has changed since the passing of RPPL 8-51, which is known as the Family Protection Act, in 2012, We also have to keep in mind that a majority of ever abused women, 65.8%, never sought help from formal services or authorities. Because again, both abuse and mental health are highly stigmatized in the culture. This makes it harder for a survivor to disclose aspects of the abuse, especially if they're related to mental health. Most commonly they're going to be worried that you'll judge them, blame them, not understand them, or just opt not to help altogether. That said, communicating non-judgment is key to countering shame and stigma. So offer support, validation, compassion, respect, listen, empathize, try your best to be there for the person who's making this disclosure. For more information about trauma-informed care, advocacy, and other services to help people in domestic violence situations, I would recommend visiting the National Center on Domestic Violence, Trauma, and Mental Health website which will be linked from the blog post for this episode. That's my mental health check-in. I hope y'all really do check-in on yourselves and each other. Thank you again for tuning in to the Shenanigans podcast, the podcast where I talk about stuff that nobody wants us to talk about. Like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the blog post that goes with this episode will be available at marire.com and it will feature links and downloads pertaining to today's episode. Special thanks to Tia Belao newspaper for providing the transcript for Senate President Jocons Baules and House Speaker Sabino Anastasio. I would like to note again that I do make it a point to try to verify and bet everything that I present, whether it's on my website, in my social media posts, or even in this podcast. That said, I cannot say that anyone specifically is profiting from the Wyndham Palau Development Project outside of the foreign investors themselves. However, it would not come as a shock if someday we did learn that there were people using their positions of authority and leadership to profit personally. You know, the government of Palau has a really carefully put together infrastructure to prevent public corruption. There are criminal penalties assigned to various acts of corruption. Public officials have to make annual financial disclosure statements. The problem is that this infrastructure is not necessarily effective. For example, the office of the Special Prosecutor and Public Auditor are responsible for enforcing anti-corruption laws against government officials. However, over the past decade, these offices have either been underfunded, understaffed. At times, the offices have been left vacant. On top of that, government workers are afraid of releasing information about government corruption. It puts them in jeopardy. It jeopardizes their careers, their families' well-being. It jeopardizes their safety. And it's difficult to mobilize against corruption when the public doesn't have access to current information about ongoing public corruption. So keep an eye on the leadership. Watch what they do, pay careful attention to what they say, and remember it. Write it down, email it, message it to a friend. Hell, message it to me. But be aware, because at this point, the only good governance is citizen-led good governance, and we are the citizenry. It's all about direct action. So, thank you again for tuning in to episode 13 of the Shenanigans podcast. And as always, please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink and dial. Don't drink and text. Don't drink and tweet. Don't drink and do anything that you might regret come morning, because come morning, you will regret it. Until next week, y'all, I'm off to do my nanniganing.